You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Bill Easterly, who is a professor of economics at NYU, also the co-director of their Development Research Institute, as well as the author of a number of books in the area of development, including The Tyranny of Experts, Economists, Dictators, and the Forgotten Rights of the Poor. And then before that, you wrote this one, The White Man's Burden, Why the West's Efforts to Aid the Rest have done so much ill and so little good. And then if we want to go way back, I was looking at the picture of you on the back cover and I was like, okay, (laughs) that's a while back. This one here, the elusive quest for growth, economists, adventures, and misadventures in the tropics. Welcome, Bill. Thank you, Greg. Good to be here. So I think the world still is quite an unequal place, even though we've seen quite a bit of progress in, in many areas, we still have quite a bit of poverty and there's still plenty of people in the world of economics and policy that are concerned about poverty in the world and what we could call underdevelopment, although I know you're not fond of that term, but there's plenty of people who are thinking about these issues and we've been thinking about these issues for a long time and yet it seems the way in which we've been thinking about them hasn't really changed all that much over the last century. We've changed the names we've changed we've stripped out some of the more offensive bits of language that you know that might have revealed some things about what was going on but but at the end of the day there hasn't been that much change and so i was was wondering first of all if you could comment on that and then secondly talk about how you spent 16 years at the world bank and yet you're very critical of the world bank and the development institutions out there and i was wondering how did you come to the position that you have? Did, did you come to it through experience working with large multi, multinational institutions? Or did you go in as sort of, you know, into the belly of the beast with a different perspective from day one? Uh, no, not from day one. I think I was very grateful to have the chance to work at the World Bank, and I still am in retrospect. I thought it was a, a very good place to work in many, many ways. World's best and largest concentration of economists working on development. Uh, I guess what happened is I uh, compared what we were supposed to be achieving with what we were actually achieving over time, and this took me quite a while. Uh, I became kind of uh, disappointed in what we were, how much our accomplishments were falling short of our, our rhetoric, that we were supposed to be promoting economic growth, especially uh, in the poorest parts of the world, like uh, parts of Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa, and yet growth was not happening in those places. The policy reforms you're recommending did not either did not happen at all, or if they did happen, they had disappointing results. And then I also worked at, toward the end of my time at the World Bank quite a bit on Russia. And that was kind of another eye opener because we went into Russia in the early 90s after the fall of the Soviet Union with a lot of hope and expectation. We all thought oh, they can instantly adopt institutions of capitalism and democracy and this place will be flourishing in no time whatsoever. (laughs) Naively thought that and we did this sort of shock therapy approach of trying to recommend they change everything at once. And then what resulted was actually one of the greatest depressions in economic history and enormous inflation, the collapse of any democratic experiment. And so that was also really an an eye-opener. So disappointments on three continents, especially Latin America, Africa, and and Russia, was sort of enough to make me re-examine things, as, as many other people were also. Now, in the book, The White Man's Burden, you make this distinction between kind of planners and searchers. And then in The Tyranny of Experts, right, you really kind of highlight what you think the key delusion is, and it has to do with this notion that there is a big plan and a master plan, a top-down plan that will ultimately solve a lot of the problems that we're concerned about. Now, isn't this just a rehashing of the kind of markets versus states dichotomy that we've seen in economics for a long time? Isn't this just a position where, you know, markets solve all problems? And as Ronald Reagan said, the government's the enemy. I think critics of your position might say that. How do you respond to that? That is an important debate, but in some ways it's the wrong debate, I think. In, in development, because I think we want high quality of private goods and public goods both. 
And so the plan, the planning approach really is trying to do top-down provision of both public goods and private goods, meaning for the public goods, like infrastructure or schools, you know, the experts already know what the answer is. They just hand in their blueprint and the government executes it. And that's supposed to bring development. And then the, on the private goods, there's also a lot of planning rather than reliance on markets. So I think the key distinction is actually more bottom-up decentralized feedback versus top-down planning, which applies both to public goods and private goods. So for public goods, the crucial thing we need is political freedom so that citizens can reject or modify the low-quality public goods that the government may be offering. Or, you know, also protest if the government is actually doing harm to them, if the government is actually expropriating their property or putting them in jail for political beliefs, you know, that's actually doing harm to them. So it's yeah, on the public good side, you really need some kind of democratic mechanism where the citizens can give feedback and hold the government accountable for what it's doing to them or for them. And that is necessary in order to get high quality public goods. So it's really, the debate really should be freedom in both political and economic senses versus authoritarianism, which just tries to impose the top-down vision in an authoritarian manner coercively with, without giving either the customers and markets or the citizens and democracies any choice. That is when a lot of harm is done by governments on both private goods and public goods. You point out that the folks who are working at, say, the World Bank and other large institutions are careful to avoid making policy proposals that could be interpreted as political, right? They want to focus on kind of what works. And this means that they avoid terms like democracy and, and so forth. And I think, you know, among economists to emphasize the, the positive and they like to stay away from the normative. And so when you come out and advocate for, say, individual rights and, and democracy and so forth, are, are you doing this, are you advocating these things as ends in themselves or are you advocating them as kind of a means to these development goals, uh, means to greater prosperity and greater what we might call development? Yeah, well, really both, both positive and normative. I think rights are an end in themselves that people want freedom. They, they do not like being coerced or oppressed by governments in and of itself. You know, I think every one of us around the world would like the right not to be tortured or imprisoned for what we are doing. So I think that's a fairly universal, understandable value. And it'd be very hard to uh, kind of ignore the normative aspect altogether. You know, I think I do realize very much that economists are very uncomfortable with the normative discussion, that we would rather just stick to the positive. But trying to claim that the positive is the only dimension really does wind up sort of being normative through the back door. If we really say, you know, we just want to know how we can raise GDP. That's just a positive recommendation. We're making implicitly a normative judgment that GDP is all that matters. So that if GDP is raised in a coercive, oppressive manner, we're saying that's good normatively. And of course, it, it, we would be uncomfortable with that once that, that is pointed out. It really isn't good if you know GDP in Uganda is being increased by the government coming in with guns and expropriating farmers from their own land and turning the land over to some other high, higher productivity user, that does raise, raise GDP, but I think we would all feel uncomfortable as being raised in a, such a, a brutal, violent, coercive manner. And I think economists, you know, since Adam Smith, we do recognize a very important role for the idea that the individual should have the right to consent to what is happening to them, that the individual choice is something that's an end in itself and should guide our normative judgments. So if we are forcing something on, uh, on poor people, then implicitly we realization that we need to force them to do it is a clue that if they don't want it, they apparently think it's not good for them and we should respect their choice. We shouldn't just force something on them. We shouldn't force Ugandan farmers to give up their land for the sake of higher GDP produced by somebody else. They know it's not good for them. We need to respect that choice. They're, we need to respect their, what they're freely expressing as their opposition, that they have not chosen what we are offering. So are you saying that kind of raising GDP is really the shared goal of all people in kind of the world of development? It's an unquestioned shared goal, or is, is it just that it's a shared goal that, you know, it's just because it's the common thing that we can all agree on, or is it something that's explicitly mandated by the founding documents of these en entities? Well, I think the founding documents do really emphasize this technocratic idea that the development can be very objectively measured. And then we've fallen on something like GDP per capita is the most kind of common objective measurement of development. 
which is sort of like implicitly saying that we don't need to consult people on what they want. We just observe that they have higher income. And so we conclude that even if we force them to have higher income, it must be good for them. Yeah, you think of an analogy with our, our own lives at an individual level. Now, it's certainly true that uh, all of us could have higher income by working 80 hours a week instead of what we were working now. We were increased our work hours. And somebody who came in, an outside expert who came in saying, wow, if you just increased your work hours to 80 hours in a week, you would objectively raise your material income. And, you know, I know that's so good for you that I'm going to force you to do that. I'm going to force you to work 80 hours a week. And the material indicator will show, yeah, that works. <laughs> it works to somebody to force me to increase my work hours. But apparently I wasn't choosing to do that already. I'm only at 75 hours a week myself. <laughs> I wasn't choosing voluntarily to do that already, which reveals that, you know, I didn't think that was good for me. So, you know, I was rejecting something that objectively looked like an improvement because I, you know, also had a demand for leisure and I wanted to have the right to say how much I wanted to work and how much leisure I wanted to have. So not, there is no objective measure that ever gives an outsider, outside expert or technocrat the ability to come in and say, I know this is going to be good for you if you just show me an objective, measurable improvement on something like GDP or income. Well, this seems like a problem that's broader than just development economics, right? I mean, this seems like all of economics is kind of in the same place, right? Yeah, I mean, this is why we need welfare economics. And there there used to be much more emphasis on welfare economics. And I think we've sort of lost some of that in the whole profession, not only development. So development economics then is not separate. One of the things that I think you allude to in your books is that this idea that, that development economics is its own discipline that's completely removed from kind of economics in general, that there's different rules that, that apply to what we now call emerging markets. And so maybe some of the general principles of economics are forgotten. Why is there this separate discipline? Obviously, people have to specialize, but is there really anything different about, say, poor countries than rich countries? Are there different rules? Are there different insights? Are there different inferences that we can make? Or is there, should we be trying to have kind of a general theory of welfare, a general theory of growth, a general theory of optimal policies? Yeah, well, it's right. For a very long time, been this tension on whether development should be a separate field or not. You know, I remember um, uh, a long time ago when in the National Bureau of Economic Research, there was no development field. And the reason um, the NBR directors gave for that was we think the same economics should apply in poor countries and rich countries. Why do we need a separate development field? I kind of sympathized with that. And I, I've seen that kind of revolve around the issue of like, do poor people really behave differently from rich people? Are they? less sensitive to prices when they decide what to do. You know, they're less responsive to, you know, supply more when prices are high, to demand less when prices are high. Or do they behave in that sort of rational way? And I think when uh, behavioral economics has been applied in, a lot in development, we've started to question whether, of course, there's a lot of questioning whether rich people are rational too, but I think historically there has been even much more questioning whether poor people are rational. And so, it seems if you think poor people are more irrational than rich people, it raises a big opening for experts to come in and tell poor people what to do for their own good. That's sort of the issue around, around which the whole thing revolves, and there's no easy answer to that. But on the whole, I and many other people historically in, in economics have rejected the idea that there's any systematic difference in individuals between rich people and poor people, that there's a sort of analytical equality that we can understand behavior of individuals by by looking at things like incentives and prices. We don't need you know, to assume or exposit a model in which poor people are intrinsically different from rich. can explain why they are poor because of what has happened with institutions and incentives. That's very diplomatic. You sound very nice. I mean, in the book, I think you're pretty harsh. You're saying that back when people talked about savages, now we talk about underdevelopment. And back when people talked about the civilizing mission. Now you talk about the development mission and, and you argue that there's some, there's a lot of continuities there and you kind of walk through the history of how development economics arose as a way of, I don't know, whitewashing <laughs> the colonial mission. Could you just kind of walk us through that, that story and uh, the kind of dirty laundry in the birth of the development field? Yeah. Well, there's this sort of mythology that development started from scratch at the time of uh, independence of former colonies. And that, that historical record just says that it's definitely not true. The idea of development had been around for you know a very long time and had been used to really justify colonialism. You know, that the 
big justification for colonialism was we we rich white people are the agents of development. We're going to develop you for your own good. You're not capable of developing yourself. And that gave us a rationale for conquering other places who, who needed us to support, allegedly needed us to develop them and occupying them, even taking land away from them like we did with Native Americans because we allegedly could develop the land better and that somehow gave us a right to their land. I think we do need to confront that, that history. I don't want to use that as some kind of smear on present development economics. I just want us to be aware of that history. And if the more we are aware of it, the more we would be conscious of to what extent have any of those ideas sort of remain in a kind of dangerous form in the present? Is there still some kind of paternalism and hidden sense of superiority, hidden sense of uh, we need to force something on these poor people that we know better than they do what is in their own good? You know, I think the historical record allows us to be very sensitive to those questions. And so you, you highlight, I think, what you call these three aspects of the technocratic illusion. And the first one is is really this idea of the the blank slate, right? That you can go in and pretty much treat every individual society or, or country as more or less similar to to the others. And you know, I trained as as an economic historian and I think as an economic historian, you're kind of torn because when you study history at some level, every situation is unique and every trajectory is unique. And Every single country is and region is sort of a has its own, you know, individual history. But then, you know, you can't really make any kind of general claims. And so economists are the ones that are looking for general claims and general rules. By delving too much into history, don't you run the risk of losing sight of general principles of what works and what, what doesn't work? I think the problem with the blank slate is that you have such a complete neglect of anything that you're thinking of poor people or less developed countries as this being like a big zero that you come in and you supply everything that all the elements of development you just supply for the first time from scratch. And if that's your mindset, that also gives you a rationale for a kind of brutal level of authoritarian control, which again, went back to the idea of kind of colonial authoritarianism that was justified by, you know, these people have nothing, they need everything from us, you know, we should have absolute unlimited power to do everything for them. That's sort of where the blank slate mentality leads you. Whereas acknowledging where people are at and where what they really are, they're not nullities. They have very rich, poor people have very rich culture and history. And respecting that, I think, allows us as development people to understand that development is only one dimension of the picture. This income per capita is only one dimension of the picture. There's a lot more going on and we don't have a right to come in and tell someone else how to reorder their whole country or their, their whole culture just because we allegedly know what things are compatible with development and they don't. So that's, that I think is the danger of the blank slates. Now, of course, they really are general principles. I, I very much agree with most economists that fundamentals, incentives and supply and demand and uh, budget constraints and all the people respond to incentives and make their choices to find their best outcome within a budget constraint. You know, I, I think that model is those general principles are very widely applicable to most situations, but they will usually give you much different answers when you take into account where people start from. Now, you talk a lot about Friedrich Hayek in the book, and especially the part about knowledge and implicit knowledge and tacit knowledge and kind of decentralized knowledge and you talk about kind of the, the planner's fallacy in the technocrat in the kind of illusion of, of technocracy but isn't that really an argument some people might interpret that as hey if you're an expert you got to just throw up your hands because there's really nothing you can learn but isn't it really more an argument in favor of hey this is really complex if you're going to be an expert that just means you have to learn a whole heck of a lot more you have to be be humble enough to realize that this is a, a difficult thing rather than an easy thing you know, there really is a genuine role for expertise. I'm not claiming there is. There isn't. I think the, the critical dimension is the expert sort of responding to the demands of the people that he, is, he or she is supposed to be serving. If we think of ourselves, we all in our own lives have demands for expertise, for medical expertise, for plumbing expertise, for financial expertise. And we, we hire experts who can do those things for us because we recognize their expertise. I think that's the right mindset is like, I, as an expert, I will try to find some specialized knowledge that I think is useful to people who then I will give the right to 
accept or reject my expert and expertise and voluntarily choose whether they want it or not. So I, I think that's the crucial dimension on expertise. It's not whether the expertise is voluntarily chosen by people who find it useful for their own lives. And that forces us as experts to make ourselves useful and not have this kind of arrogance and hubris that we so much better, we know so much better than other people what is good for them that we don't have to listen to them. We're just going to force everything on them. What would that look like to be an expert? I mean, if, you know, you talk about uh, kind of spontaneous order and decentralized solutions and letting people kind of muddle through and figure things out on their own, then what is the role of the kind of development expert? How should, if we're going to have institutions like the World Bank, how should they be thinking? What kind of expertise should they be trying to acquire so that they can, in fact, help? Should they just give up on the process of helping or just get out of the way and, and let things evolve organically? Or are there some concrete things that development experts can do to kind of help jumpstart an improvement in welfare? So I think, again, we should distinguish between private goods and public goods on this. So I think on private goods, oftentimes the answer is just get out of the way. <laughs> public goods, not necessarily. But on, on private goods, take something like the idea that uh, the poor people need need broadband access as the key to getting out of poverty, which is a very popular idea. Now actually part of the <laughs> infrastructure initiative in the U.S. also. And the history of that in development has been, that has not been a great success as something useful in development. One study in India found that when broadband came on into villages in India, the main effect was just young men start playing a lot of video games <laughs> when they got broadband. And an example that's sort of the opposite of that is to everyone's surprise, poor people in Africa started to find very basic primitive cell phones incredibly useful. So cell phone usage even by very poor people in Africa, it suddenly exploded over the last about 10 or 15 years ago and has continued to explode since then. And cell phones have been, you know, far more useful than broadband to poor people. They can use it for financial transactions. Farmers can use it for information on prices of inputs or where they can market their crops most advantageously. Fishermen can use it as uh, flow and Apogee Energy showed in a study can use cell phones to find out which beach they land on, where there's going to be the most demand for their fish. All of those things were not really anticipated by any expert ahead of time. That was just something that poor people in the market sort of voted for what they found to be useful. They did not find broadband to be so useful. They did find primitive cell phones to be very useful. And if you travel in, in Africa, then you, you will see on every street corner, a little kiosk selling very small increments of minutes for cell phones to confirm just how much this is really reaching very far down the income distribution to very poor people. So that's an example where I think experts just really need to get out, get mostly get out of the way on private goods. On public goods, you know, there of course, uh, public goods often involve some government expertise, just like we've been relying on public health experts to get through the COVID pandemic. There's definitely a role for government experts to kind of tell us what are good health programs that will help the whole population that do vaccination programs that, that spread medical knowledge that is really useful to everyone. Those are pure public goods. And it's definitely a role for expertise in, in those goods. But again, there still has to be some accountability of the experts to the citizens. So if the experts are doing something that is just crazy that the citizens don't want, there should be some mechanism that the citizens can vote with their feet or with their votes to reject what the experts are offering and choose different experts that are giving them what they want. That actually could be a, a big mechanism by which better quality public goods are delivered, that people are protesting if the, no, the health government health workers are not showing up the health clinics, they're protesting and complaining and calling their parliamentarian, and then that will be a strong incentive to correct those problems. Or if the, the government is offering some kind of uh, good that they do not want, then they, they have a mechanism for complaining. Again, the question comes down to, it's not so much, again, not government versus markets. It's more both governments and private suppliers have to be accountable to the people they're supposedly serving. Well, how do you enforce this accountability? Critics of foreign aid say that foreign aid strengthens the states that receive this foreign aid. But don't we need strong states in order to enforce the rules to not only generate public goods, but also provide the infrastructure that allows for the markets to provide the private goods. You walk through kind of the history of kind of European states, and it's the states that were strongest that 
managed to, like the English state that managed to ultimately be the most democratic. Are we thinking about it wrong? We think about kind of strong states and equating them with autocracy. Is there a difference? How do we strengthen the state without kind of strengthening the autocrats? That's a great question. There's not, of course, no easy answer to that. But I think what you're suggesting, I think, is correct, that there's, we should distinguish between state capacity, which is just the state's ability to do anything, <laughs> and the level of democracy. So capacity and democracy are different things. You could have an uh, ineffective democratic state, which should not, not be very happy. So what we really want is a capable state that is democratically accountable to the citizens, but is indeed capable of delivering things when the citizens want them to. What we don't want is a capable autocratic state who will then use their capability to oppress and deny the citizens what they most want, but what is in the interest of the rulers to perpetuate their own power. So I think the complaint about aid to autocrats is that aid to autocrats perpetuates autocrats longer, staying longer in power because it disconnects them from any need to raise tax revenue from their own citizens, they can get the eldest money from foreigners and then be unaccountable to their own citizens. And so you say that the development experts are somewhat infatuated with the kind of benevolent autocrat. Is this based on bad empirics or is this just uh, wishful thinking? Yeah, certainly it, it is obviously true that some autocratic regimes have had very high economic growth. And uh, But the, the problem with that is they're also autocratic regimes that have had disastrous economic growth. So I think uh, you have to realize that with, if you think you're getting very high growth with an autocrat, you may just as well wind up with very disastrous growth. You may think that you have a leap on you when you really have a, a Joseph Mobutu. And so that's sort of fallacy number one about benevolent autocrats. And then I think fallacy number two is we're giving, even for that difference, even then, we're still giving the good autocrats too much of the credit for growth. Yeah, I think the empirical evidence shows that a lot of the growth variation in, in low-income states is having to do with things like whether the, the state, whether the, the government and the population are rapidly adopting foreign technology or not, and thus realizing a great potential for technological catching up. That's often is the real source of high growth rather than the alleged benefits of an authoritarian leader. And also, we're also very much neglecting the role of just random events in autocrats that have high or low growth rates. There's a very large random component to that. People don't, are not fully aware just in how incredibly volatile growth is. And so with such a volatile growth, it's quite possible that a lot of what look like high growth just happens by chance. And you know, it's being driven by random events like commodity price increases or measurement error or recovering from a war or things like that have nothing to do with the quality of the leader. So how would you structure some kind of conditional aid to try to encourage the things that you think are most likely to lead to welfare improvements? First of all, I don't think you can actually use aid as a lever to try to make governments more democratic or more, you know, more free or, or less oppressive than they are. I think that has been tried and hasn't really worked. That might be a reason people just don't want to talk about the issue of democracy at all because they know of no way in which aid can fix it. And I think that's mostly correct. And I certainly don't want us to go, you know, invade, invade the country like we did in Iraq or Afghanistan to try to supposedly impose democracy at the point of a bayonet by force. But what about all the, what about all the assistance that was given, say, prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union to build social capital to help encourage the formation of different groups like unions and, and so forth to create these counterbalances to state power. Even if you're an autocrat, if there are entities out there that you have to negotiate with to procure tax revenue, then you're going to have to negotiate with them. In fact, in part of your book, you go through this whole description about how oftentimes we give credit to autocrats for improving things when in fact it's really something that they're more or less forced to do by the bargaining power of civil society. Are there ways that we can kind of strengthen civil society to drag the autocrats along? Uh, so possibly there is. Uh, if there is that scope, it's probably pretty modest. Outside aid could modestly strengthen civil society or give aid to um, you know NGOs that might put pressure on the government to do better things. I think it's hard to imagine that there's outside aid can do that in any kind of large-scale drastic way, because why would the autocrat allow that to happen? <laughs> why would the autocrat allow outside aid to come in and basically finance a sort of overthrow of his own regime? 
by outside actors. I think the autocrats more likely to do what they often, in fact, have done in places like Russia or Ethiopia is just say, um, these evil foreigners are trying to meddle in our own affairs. Let's just tell them they can't come in and appeal to nationalism, which often works effectively as an appeal. So I hate to sound so pessimistic. I just don't have a lot of faith in uh, the ability of outsiders to overthrow <laughs> or undermine domestic tyrant effectively to have the knowledge or the power to do that. You know, I have much more faith in kind of homegrown democratic activists. I think the best thing that we can do as aid actors is, first of all, just intellectually give them the recognition that, yes, we agree that uh, a tyrannical leader is undermining the development of Ethiopia, not promoting the development of Ethiopia and undermining Uganda, undermining Rwanda. Not, it's not a positive force, it's a negative force. And then we give sort of intellectual support and encouragement to the homegrown opponents of authoritarian rule. They don't have such a discouraging experience seeing foreigners come in and praise their own oppressor. So I think that's kind of morale booster is, is a very intangible thing that I think is, is much more important than, than we think it is. And I think the other thing we can do is just be discriminating about where the aid goes. There is really no reason to give aid to a brutal authoritarian ruler. If you think the poor people living under that ruler deserve help. I agree they deserve help, but the, the help is probably not going to reach them if the authoritarian ruler has the ability to use the aid for their own political patronage, as, as indeed has been documented to happen in places like Ethiopia, where aid donors' investigations and investigations by Human Rights Watch found that food aid was being manipulated by the authoritarian government to go to their own supporters and was denied to opposition members. We don't want aid to be manipulated in that way by authoritarian rulers. So the answer is just don't give aid to authoritarian rulers. Give it to, you know, inject aid into places where there already is a democratic government that can just use the resources in a benevolent, accountable way to its own citizens. And there's other ways of directing funds to the people who can best use them. And I think one area, one movement is what we think of now as social venture. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what you're seeing in, in that area, right? Because this is definitely more of a bottom-up approach rather than having these huge initiatives to, say, solve the sanitation problem. We're enabling people on the ground to potentially even earn profits from solving these problems. Yeah, well, uh, definitely the attempt to use the market as a mechanism to get us get feedback on what people want is, is good. So if you have a social marketing kind of initiative that even if you have poor people pay a few pennies for something like a malaria bed net or a, a medication that is a private good, like antibiotics, you know, at least you allow the market to work that you get feedback from who really wants the good you are offering and you get some financing available to pay for that good that you're supplying. And that seems like a, a win-win opportunity there to use markets as a mechanism for getting feedback from their consumers on whether you're really reaching them, whether they really want you, whether you're offering. So the historian in me really enjoyed the, the stories about the different trajectories of countries. My favorite story there had to do with how events that went back all the way to Frederick Barbarossa can predict organ donation rates in Italy in, in the present, a thousand years later. Can you tell us a bit about the social capital, the importance of social capital, and how does social capital get created? If we wanted to have something like self-independent cities, corporate entities like the ones that developed in northern Italy, is there a way that we could do that? Is there a way to emphasize the formation of these collectivities that can build out some social trust? Yeah, I think what th those kind of long-run studies show is that historical events can do very much affect cultural variables like the level of trust between citizens, the level to which people think that other people can be trusted and thus uh, make possible a lot of pro-social behavior like being willing to give organ donations to uh, perfect strangers and willing to commit in advance to donate organs to perfect strangers. And that's a sort of a good indicator of that kind of society in which you don't have this sort of insider-outsider distinction, which is, I think, what happens with authoritarian institutions, that you have some group that's in power that oppresses the outgroups, and then the everyone in that society learns to distrust everyone else and think of collapses on using your own family or kin as your only source of survival. And in that world, you don't have a lot of trust between, you don't trust strangers in that world. So an authoritarian event like the 
conquering by Frederick Barbarossa of some cities, but not others in, the, in Northern Italy can affect the level of trust between citizens and strangers centuries later, because these cultural values tend to persist as, as parents teach their children, oh, you can't trust you. Yes, you can trust strangers. You know, parents pass these values on to their children, so they last a long time. Similarly, the, there's a great study by uh, Nathan Nunn and Leonard Wanchikon in, in Africa that finds that groups victimized by the slave trade today are much less trusting of strangers than are groups that were not victimized by the slave traders. And that, that obviously makes sense in the context where you know, slaves were kidnapped by strangers and had horrible things happen to them. So, of course, you don't trust strangers. And then uh, that mistrust gets perpetuated down the generations again. So that's definitely an important determinant of development because trust is so important for making possible a lot of the elementary economic transactions that we need to have happen to realize the benefits of you know, gains from trade and division of labor and gains from specialization. All, that, all of them require being able to do you know, trusting transactions between strangers. And that's going to be a lot easier when you have trust and very difficult when you don't have trust. Well, you distinguish between kind of the trust between strangers and the, and the trust between members of, say, a, a clan or, or a tribe or, or an ethnic group. And on the one hand, you say that it's much better to have this more generalized trust than this localized trust. But then you also tell some stories about how this localized trust can really be harnessed to build out the development of at least some portion of the community. You know, you talk about the Fujianese and you talk about the Senegalese and the Maghribis back in the Middle Ages. Can we look at those institutions as allies or as obstacles in the world of development? Yeah, I think trust within the ethnic group is better than no trust at all, but not as good as generalized trust. So we want to, not a black and white picture, but more of a kind of picture of stages that having, at least having trust within the ethnic group makes possible a lot of transactions within the ethnic group. And that at least allows you to build trading networks and investment networks within the ethnic group, which is certainly better than nothing. But it still does prevent you from expanding your network to the whole population and choosing perfect strangers as partners, which is what becomes more possible when you have more generalized trust. Trust within the ethnic group can achieve some pretty remarkable things, like uh, you know the Senegalese that you mentioned uh, is a, a group called the Maurids that have taken over street-level retailing and in a lot of major Western cities, including New York, where I live. And you, you see, you know, Maurits on the street with tables selling electronic goods or designer knockoffs, <laughs> stuff like that. The reason Maurits sort of have dominated this field is because they have this informal level of trust within Maurits that they can use Maurits back in Senegal as suppliers and investors and they, these networks. They can trust each other to do these transactions within New York to, that are necessary to set up the tables on the sidewalk. And that, that has allowed them to take over that, that whole sector because of the high level of trust they have within the group. It does not give access as much access of more reads to breaking out into other sectors or taking advantage of the whole set of opportunities in the, in the broader economy of Western cities that they would have had if they had the, the kind of cultural background that would allow them to trust strangers outside the group more. So it's a kind of halfway good thing, but then it kind of doesn't give you the full upside of what you can have with generalized trust. Now, when so someone migrates from, say, Senegal to the United States, I mean, that clearly makes that individual Senegalese person better off. But you say that development economists have kind of a dim view of this kind of migration, that they would see this as a, as a loss for Senegal. They would see this as a brain drain and therefore something to be discouraged. You argue that it should be encouraged, the free movement of, of labor. Yeah, I think as development economists, we have somehow evolved into having this kind of irrational attachment to the development of nation states as the only thing we want to focus on when we talk about development. So we're really sort of implying that what we care about is the development of a piece of land called Senegal. And I think what we should be caring about is the, all the people that live on that land, all the Senegalese, instead of just the territory of Senegal. And so if some Senegalese get out of poverty by migrating from Senegal to the U.S., there's no reason to exclude that from the calculation of what works for Senegalese people. There's no reason to limit what works to only things that work for Senegalese people if they stay in Senegal. And so, you know, migration is, is actually one of the few things that almost everyone agrees. Whatever other considerations there might be about migration definitely seems to work to raise 
poor people's income when they moved to a rich country. And in that sense, it's one of the, the most effective development programs that we are aware of, but has been absurdly undervalued by development economists. The uh, migration researchers and advocates, Michael Clemens and Lant Pritchett, pointed out that uh, 85% of all Haitians who have ever escaped poverty did so by moving to the U.S. And, you know, do we really want to take that channel away or count that as somehow illegitimate compared to developing the nation of the, the territory called Haiti? Of course, it still would be great to develop the territory called Haiti. We don't want to give up on that. But it certainly does should count for something that Haitians on their own have already done a lot of great work developing themselves by being able to seize opportunities to work in the U.S. You tell the story about Arthur Lewis and Albert Hirschman, who are both Nobel Prize winning economists and their early involvement in kind of development. And I think both of them went through some sort of disillusionment at, at some point when they observed a little more carefully and critically what was happening in the world. Do you think that every development economist goes through uh, sort of a, a cycle or a phase, you know, where you go from being young and idealistic to being uh, older and wiser and maybe a bit cynical? Is this sort of a, a natural trajectory? Do we want to discourage the idealism of young development economists and say, you know, get wise from day one? Or is, is it sort of a, a necessary phase that, that everyone has to go through? You know, I don't really think of it as idealism versus cynicism. I think it's more a function of the, the fact that we sort of all, we start off with a set of things that we think are sort of easy answers to development, easy answers to poverty. And then over time, we realize the answers are not so easy. That's the way in which we become wise. We realize the answers are not so easy. And I think that's, you know, that really should come pretty naturally to economists. I think one of our big insights was, you know, the statement is, if it was so easy, then why didn't it happen already? You know, why? Why? Uh, if it was so easy to end poverty, then why does poverty still exist? Why didn't it already happen that poverty ended if it was so easy? That I think is one of the most fundamental insights of economics. You know, the idea that there usually is not a lot of $20 bills for free lying on the sidewalk to pick up. If you see a lot of $20 bills on the sidewalk, they're probably fake $20 bills. Advertising something as a gimmick and not real $20 bills. Now, of course, sometimes you really do find a real $20 bill on the sidewalk and you should pick it up. But the awareness that you're not likely to be able to make a living by depending on $20 bills lying for free on the sidewalk is, is part of what you know gives us our insight as economists, that things cannot be that easy or else they, they would have happened already. Well, I think that some, the more things change, the more they stay the same. You talk about how this debate began way back with Adam Smith and his kind of debates with the mercantilists and how the mercantilists really, they had a very different approach, but was there, was there a different approach, this kind of top-down vision? Was this actually a belief about how things were supposed to be done, or was it really that their clients and their constituents and the folks that were asking them for advice were the, the rulers. The people who are asking the World Bank for assistance are the rulers, right? And they're the clients and the constituents. So to the extent that you're trying to do constituent service, right? That you're trying to service the people that are, that are coming in position to, to work with you. Isn't that sort of what's going on here more so than a, a deep difference in, in approaches and a difference in, in beliefs about how the world works? You know, I think Rulers, so you're right. The problem is really that development is serving, development establishment and aid business is really serving the needs of the rulers rather than the needs of the citizens. And the rulers are often going to be attached to some kind of prestige measure uh, that shows how wonderful they are as rulers. They will like the high GDP per capita numbers. They will like the prestige projects, uh, big dams and giant interstate roads that are financed by donors that they can open with elaborate ribbon-cutting ceremonies, but are not really, these white elephants as they often wind up being, are not really consulting the citizens on whether that's really what they wanted or not. And I think the way that's similar to what the, the debate that Adam Smith had with the mercantilists is the mercantilists, you know, were just reflecting the, the thoughts of the rulers that they thought the prestige item for nations is just how much... Uh, gold and silver the nation had in as international reserves. That was their measure of success. Just like today, our measure of objective success is something like GDP per capita. And Adam Smith said, no, no, you're getting that all wrong. Success depends on what people actually want. The magic of the invisible hand came out of this insight that you, 
the invisible hand in markets gives the individual an ability to choose what they want, including sometimes they will want to send some of this gold and silver somewhere else to get something more valuable in exchange, a supply of wine from Portugal or cotton from India or whatever. And, you know, it's irrational to want to hold on to gold and silver as a prestige item rather than give it up for what people actually want. That was Adam Smith's insight. And so it's really the insight of the objective indicator that is favored by the rulers and the experts as, as what they think success looks like, rather than giving poor people and all people the right to, for them to say for themselves what success looks like for me, which then takes you to the place where what you respect above all is the choices that people make in markets, the choices that people make in democracy to say what they want and have the right to say what they want and hold their suppliers accountable to them for giving them what they want. Well, if you fast forward 200 years from that debate, you've got Gunnar Myrdal and Friedrich Hayek winning the Nobel Prize in the same year, and they gave speeches back to back, but you argue that the debate never happened and that Myrdal was representing the mercantilists, you know, making similar arguments and talking about how the development has to be imposed on people, whether they like it or not. And Hayek was criticizing that. But you say the debate never happened. Is the debate finally happening? Why didn't the debate happen? Why were people talking past one another? And have we, you know, is the debate happening now? Or do you think that we're being more productive in terms of hashing out these issues and resolving them? Or are we still, do we still have these two different groups talking past one another? Yeah. I mean, I don't think about so much as talking past each other. I think it's more, there's a establishment group that has won the argument enough to be the establishment, to be in charge of, be the conventional wisdom and development. And then there are the critics that said the conventional wisdom is wrong. You need to do something different. Like authoritarian planning is not the right thing. You need free markets and free democracy instead. And frankly, there is no reason why the establishment would want to have that debate. They're doing fine. They are, they are occupying the position they want of control of most of the development fields. And so why would they voluntarily want to debate anyway? And it's often the case in many fields that the establishment has no incentive to debate with critics. And frankly, I have to admit also the critics, some of us are very, very skillful at persuading the establishment. We put the establishment on the defensive. They think that we're saying that they are, they're bad, that they're morally bankrupt. And so, of course, they don't want to listen to us if that's the way we're, you know, framing our criticism. And I think we often, us critics often make that mistake that we don't empathize enough with the people that we're criticizing. They have good reasons for, even if we think they, they've chosen the wrong model, they have had good reasons for doing so, and we probably would have done the same thing in their place. So how can we make this debate more productive? Should we be focusing on the ends of development and try to come to uh, more agreement on what the ends are, or should we continue to focus on kind of the means to those ends, the promotion of more decentralized decision-making, the promotion of more feedback and accountability in systems, that seems to be not inconsistent with even the ends of the development establishment, which is greater GDP per capita. Yeah, I think we do have to have a discussion on the need for kind of normative values to guide development policy choices, because obviously you you can't really make any policy decisions unless you do have some kind of welfare economics that is based on some normative principles like people's right to consent or choose. The difficulty really is that, you know, normative debates are not really debates. They're not really scientific. A norm is just something that you think is, is good as an end in itself. If someone else doesn't think it's a good thing as an end in itself, there's no way for you to persuade them. There's no way in which you are necessarily morally superior to them because they disagree on whether it's a good thing in itself. I think that's a good reason why economists are kind of leery of that. But unfortunately, we can't just get away from the narrative dimension so easily because we none of us are going to be happy with just saying GDP per capita is always good, even if it involves oppression or slavery or coercion. We, of course, are not going to be happy with that either. So we need to have some discussion on what are minimum normative things that we can agree on as guidelines for our, our policies. Otherwise, they'll be kind of hidden in the background, buried underground without us openly acknowledging what's going on. So maybe the most productive thing would be to get people who are unaware that they have some normativity baked into their policies, make them yeah. more aware of the implied normativity. Because I think a lot of economists who, who claim to be non-normative, they don't realize that they're being normative and they might actually be a little disturbed by discovering that they're being normative. Yeah, I think that's right. And 
there are some dimensions in which economists are more willing to have this discussion than others. I think the inequality discussion is kind of like discussing what normative values do we want to have? Do we think greater equality is a good thing in itself? I think most of us do. And so, you know, if we place a lot of weight on that, then that's another reason we wouldn't only want to talk about GDP per capita. We would want to talk about the distribution of GDP also. And I think that's pretty well accepted. But that was well accepted because there is agreement on some other normative value than just higher material income. There's also, you know, a normative weight placed on greater equality. And that's fine. So that's a good example of how that kind of constructive debate led to healthy discussions of inequality. I think we should be able to do the same thing with discussing the issue of kind of freedom versus coercion or autocracy versus democracy. But we should be willing to consider that kind of people's right to choose for themselves is a good thing in and of itself. And anyone who agrees with that should be willing to incorporate that into their policy recommendations. Yeah, and I think most people would probably agree with that, <laughs> at least most of yeah, the I economists hope, I, I hope know. So. Yeah. I hope so. It comes out of kind of enlightenment values that we've lived with for two centuries now. Well, Bill, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. This last book was, um, was a couple of years ago. Is there another book on the horizon? Yeah, I'm working on one now on the, the history of the development idea, probing deeper into the, the long history of kind of Western thinking about developing other people, developing the rest. Well, I think you could see that embryonic form in your other books too. I look forward to reading about W.W. Rostow and Lewis and, and Hirschman and Rosenstein, Radon, and all the other folks as an intellectual history. That would be fascinating. Thank you so much, Bill. Appreciate it. Hope to see you back in Berkeley sometime soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Unsiloed.